Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Tyler Yasuda again as part of our series. And also we're joined by Mike Nelson. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? I'm happy to. Hi, Ross. Thanks for having me. I uh, My name is Mike. I am a physical therapist. I've been practicing for a little under 10 years. So I work for a large private practice in the Bay Area called Agile Physical Therapy, kind of scattered clinics from San Francisco all the way down to Los Altos. We have some contract work with employers in the Bay Area that I help oversee. And as part of my patient-facing time, I work uh, virtually and I treat people via telehealth for about 20, 25 hours a week. Um, I also am you know, pretty invested in teaching. I used to be a lecturer faculty at UCSF SFSU PT program in their first year orthopedic course. I've moved from San Francisco, as you know, Russ. Uh, so I've had to step away from that, but still finding time in the classroom a little bit here at Sac State and with our orthopedic residency uh, in, in our company. Great, Mike. So yeah, great to have you on. And we have you on because of, in part because of Tyler's injury and you know your knowledge. Um, so yeah, Tyler, what is uh, the current situation with your injury? And you just mentioned a little bit off air, but you want to just update people about that? Yeah, so real quick, cliff notes. Uh, the original injury was a pec major uh, rupture. Basically, the bigger muscle in my chest tore off my arm bone. Uh, surgically repaired just about 27 weeks post-op as of this Wednesday. Um, so a little over half a year now since surgery. Uh, the recovery has been long and boring, uh, and, and, but mostly smooth. So got back into movement very recently, uh, progressed to a point where we are re- reintroducing a, a barbell bench press, um, kind of backtracking a little bit. Some of my background is powerlifting and, and training for that sort of strength. So I was really excited to do that, but, uh, you know, kind of a setback recently with the introduction of that barbell bench press, uh, we're not exactly sure what caused this because I didn't feel anything on the press itself. And it was no, you know, really significant load. Um, but since then, been having some issues with my my shoulder on the injured side. Um, the pec feels fine. It's just the the shoulder itself, and or we suspect maybe posterior um, rotator cuff, maybe a slight strain in there somewhere, preventing me from really being able to do much pressing work at the moment. Um, but everything else is more or less fine. Great. So you're progressing, but it's a long process. So yeah, 27 yeah. weeks, that's that's crazy time. So Mike, is this something that you see, you know, in your practice that powerlifting has a lot of injuries or are people stronger because of the powerlift? And then also for like weightlifting as well, you know, for expectations, mm. like is this kind of normal or is it a bit of a freak accident? Mm. There's a lot of questions in that one question. Uh, you know, I think that, one is if you look at incidence rates of, of injury and in powerlifting and weightlifting, they're pretty low, especially compared to things like contact sports, like football. Um, I don't see them very often, but I treat a very general population as opposed to working specifically with barbell athletes who are, of course, going to have a pretty significant selection bias with who they see. I can see a lot of barbell athletes with injuries. Um, but, I, you know, I also think that if you look at those studies that are talking about incidents and, and likelihood of injury, there's there's some stuff that makes it complicated, right? Like, how do you define injury in these studies? How do you sample whether people are injured? Like, what size of a group and who is the group you're sampling? Um, so, you know, if you think about, like, football, it's pretty rare to find recreational football players. <laughs> um, but it's incredibly likely to find recreational weightlifters. So, you know, you're getting sampling from football players that are playing, they have coach practice game schedule. Most weightlifters aren't semi-pro or professional. Um, most of them are recreational. So it's hard to think about, you know, how do we really know how common injury is in that group? Um, a lot of studies looking at pro and semi-pro athletes, as opposed to just the general population of people that are putting a barbell hand, a barbell in their hand on a regular basis. And then, I, I, you know, maybe what else is baked in there is like, how do you define injury and injury severity, right? A lot of these studies are just kind of sampling based on people saying, yeah, this is severe or yeah, this is moderate, or they'll put some criteria on what constitutes a severe injury. So they'll say, if you miss training for more than a week, that that qualifies as severe injury, which means if I break my pinky toe and I'm not squatting for 10 days, I have a severe injury just like Tyler does. 
uh, even though he would probably be the first to say that those are radically different injuries and completely different recovery timelines. So the collection of that and the method methodological process for getting that information is, is really hard. But I would say in my experience, weightlifting injury is relatively low. Would you uh, estimate that that might be because of, say, the entire weightlifting population? As you're saying, like most of us are recreational athletes, if you want to call it that. Um, the like ceiling of performance is actually quite low for most of us. Whereas if you're playing semi-pro or pro football, that ceiling or even the minimum requirement for performance is quite high, right? So yeah. do, do you think any part of what we see in terms of injury incidents is just because of that that ceiling or even the the, the baseline for like pro athletes? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a big part of it. I mean, if you're just discounting the fact that football is a contact sport and that opens you up to a ton of variety of other injury. I mean, just just the idea that people that are in that camp are playing at a much higher competitive level in general, whereas, you know, you'd have to look specifically at pro or semi-pro weightlifters or athletes or uh, uh, powerlifters to make a least reasonable comparison. Whereas, you know, if you're talking about what's the likelihood of weightlifting for the general population of people lifting, it's it's probably lower. Yeah. It would be interesting to see contact being added to weightlifting, though. Imagine you're going for your squat and somebody tackles you. <laughs> slight uptick in injury rates, but but only slight. Yeah, yeah. Neither me or Ross would have survived that one, I don't think. <laughs> the video on YouTube of uh, someone squatting on a half BOSU ball comes to mind, where mm. the whole idea of... Uh, stimulating more muscle because you're unbalanced comes in but that is <laughs> a recipe for disaster <laughs> i don't know if either of you guys will remember this or have even seen it but there was a time when the nasm textbook when that was a thing had a picture of a guy squatting on a bosu ball on the cover i don't remember that but that's really <laughs> funny it's nice to see we've come a long way from that though true yeah, they were not actively Hopefully. walking into higher injury. So with the injury, then kind of taking a step back at pain, like is um, pain something that is inherently a part of resistance training, Mike, do you think? And, you know, when is pain an injury or when does it become too much? Mm. I mean, I might, I might say pain is a part of life inherently, right? Uh, you know, it's, you're going to feel it's almost impossible to go through life without it. If if you're someone who's born without the ability to feel it, it's it's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. Um, so it's our aches and pains an inevitable part of participating in sport. Absolutely. Is catastrophic injury an inevitable part of participating in sport? Certainly not um, because it's more rare. Uh, and I think you can kind of work your way in, into the foggy middle between that. But like, if you are, working out regularly, putting physical demand on your body regularly, having aches and pains, which again, I know that's loosely defined. That's probably pretty inevitable. I'd, I'd hate to say with hundred percent certainty, because I'm sure someone out there has can prove me wrong, but they'd be the exception to the rule, you know? And then, okay. Pain. When does it become a concern where someone might have to see someone like you? When, like, do you have a kind of a sort of approach or any recommendations for, when it becomes a concern, the pain. Yeah, I mean, I think that first you have to at least think a little bit about the nature of the injury. Is it traumatic or catastrophic? Did it occur under high load, high speed, high force? You know, and was it sudden onset or was it a little bit more insidious or atraumatic? Um, and that latter camp being the far more likely one that you would experience, something that's just kind of secondary to overuse doing a little too much, but not a catastrophic injury, like rupturing your pec tendon. Um, and then I think, you know, from there, most injuries are people can self-treat for the most part, but in, in general, what I tell people is if it's getting worse, despite you taking smart, intelligent action to, to make it better, or if it's been, you know, everyone has a little bit of a different threshold here, but if it's been, you know, two to six weeks and it's not getting better at all, it's just kind of flatlined. Those are good criteria for bringing in someone, adding someone to your kind of your thought process, getting an expert that can look at it and say, here's what my thoughts are. Let's talk about options going forward. So 
what what are kind of some of the first intelligent actions? So let's just say, for example, I have a knee pain, you know, from lifting. What are some of those intelligent kind of actions that you would suggest or you you do recommend? Yeah, it's it's tricky to it's tricky to make something like that algorithmic. You know what I mean? Like the almost like it's tempting because it would make it so simple for there to be a flow chart. If you experience this, then do this. And if you experience this, then do this, et cetera. And I think to a certain degree, we can loosely outline something like that, but just the nature of using pain as the main marker for walking ourselves through that is inherently difficult, right? Because of how differently pain is experienced by every single person, you know, and they've studied this, right? You can do, noxious stimulus tests with large groups of people where you administer the exact same noxious stimulants, usually hot or cold temperature to the exact same part of their body. And then you ask all these people from zero to a hundred, right? How much this hurts when we hold it here for exactly five seconds. And when you do something like that, you get the most frustrating result in the world, which is it's completely random and it spans the entirety from zero to 95. It's not distributed around five with slightly less people, four and six and slightly less people, seven and three. It's like just completely random across that entire gamut from zero to 95 for the exact same stimulus, right? So pain is going to be entirely dependent on you as a person (laughs) and it's going to change completely. So for some people, like small amounts of pain, we can ignore them. We can push through. And for some, we need to learn our body and how it responds to load and stress and how it responds to pain. And we need to back off appropriately. Um, but in general, I'd say for something that's a traumatic that comes on insidiously, like, you know, the kind of the template is appropriately withdraw the, the offending stimulus, right. And then appropriately reload that offending stimulus, um, which I realize is a bit like saying to get to Alaska, you get in your car and drive North. It's pretty broad, but you know, the questions that follow, how long should I re- remove the offending stimulus for? How, to what degree should I remove it? How quickly should I reload? I mean, those are all questions that are inherent to the individual and their injury. But that template is pretty much the same. That's that's what Tyler's template is, too. It's just a much longer, much more complicated template. He wasn't allowed to do all these things after the surgery, completely remove certain aspects of the offending stimulus, and then very slowly and gradually, we're systematically adding this load and these movements back in his repertoire for his left shoulder could we say uh i know approaching an answer that isn't essentially you know it depends um is tough but can we say that reintroducing whatever movement whatever offending stimulus um that could be guided by at the very least you not experiencing more significant pain discomfort whatever you would call it over time as you continue to progress that yeah, I think that's a that's a great threshold, right? If you're reintroducing offending, offending stimulus and it's things are getting worse, it's probably too much, too soon, too fast, or some combination of those three things, right? Um, if you're reintroducing it and pain is stable or ideally improving, you know, then I think that's a, a, a relative green light. Of course, considering the nature of the injury, the tissues that are injured, etc. And I, I know, Mike, for you, that may feel like. Uh like a non-answer, but I, I think to a lot of people out there listening, that's very helpful to hear you say that because on either end of the spectrum, there are some guys for sure who, and girls who, uh, they, their tendency is like, no, I'm just going to train through this, even though it's getting worse. I'm going to train through this. I'm not going to, you know, throw in the towel because that would make me weak or whatever. There's just as many who would say, I'm just going to not do anything until I don't feel anything. And then I'll come back to it later. And I think either of those is probably wrong, if I had to guess. I would agree with that, right? Kind of either tail end of those extremes is, is probably detrimental. And and the right answer is probably somewhere in that foggy middle of like, I, I can train through this, but I have to do it intelligently. And I have to do it in a way that shows long-term improvement in this pain or this injury. Uh, and that can be hard. Sometimes it's straightforward, but more often than not, it's it's a bit of a convoluted path. Would you say that to the extent that you can, it's important to continue training, uh, practicing your sport, even in the event of an injury? Like, would you, I, I guess another way you could ask a question is that would you ever recommend, like they say somebody did injure 
for me, when I ruptured my pec, would you have recommended that I just do nothing for some time because the trauma was so severe? Or do I maybe continue training a lower body? Do I play soccer? I don't know. Whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I mean, in general, you should stay as active as you can, right? It's just good advice for your body. It's good advice for your longevity. It's good advice for your injury recovery. It's, it's tricky though, right? Because if a runner can't run, but they love running, telling them, Hey, you know what you should do? You should hop on the, you should hop on the bike is like, <laughs> it's like they can't imagine anything worse. Um, so within reason for someone like you, who's, you know, has so much invested in their health and fitness and is at such an advanced level, like I'm, I'm sure you found ways to stay active. I'm sure you probably needed a few days after surgery, but in general, I bet you're able to work your lower body. You were able to work your right side. Um, and we advise those things to the extent that you're still keeping the original injury safe and, and on the right trajectory. Yeah, that, that was more or less, at least the, the PTs that I work with, that was more or less a recommendation. It was strange though, because uh, the surgery side, um, they had recommended basically doing nothing for quite a long period of time. And the, uh, the first PT that I saw, you know, my, my in-network PT kind of recommended the same thing, like no exercise of any sort for like a month. And that was, I wasn't going to do that because I probably would have gone crazy anyway, but also it didn't seem like a great idea to me for the sake of, uh, kind of limiting my losses, if you will. Yeah. I mean, and, and the devil can be in the details there a little bit, you know, should you be sure. maxing out leg press three days after <laughs> surgery? Probably not. Cause you're probably getting upper body co-contraction, you know, so I think there's, there's lines that are difficult to draw there, but like, could you get on an exercise bike two days after your surgery and pedal and get your heart rate up and get your blood pumping? Like, yeah, pretty safely. So, um, I, I think, and of course there's other examples of doing things safely, but yeah, I think in general, staying active is really helpful. Yeah. That, uh, the word that you just said, co-contraction brings back many memories of the first few weeks, I learned very quickly that I accidentally use my pec for everything. Um, like <laughs> typing with my right arm sometimes when some I'd contract my left side for no reason or sneezing, man, sneezing was the worst thing I could do for a few weeks. Um, but yeah, like I absolutely right. I do think learning, uh, learning what I could do without making things worse was really important. You're in good company with the sneezing and coughing comment. You'll find that if you talk to people that have had chest surgery, shoulder surgery, spinal surgery, that that, <laughs> that stuff is pretty scary the first two weeks after the surgery. Um, and yeah, that I can empathize with that for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely like, I don't know, uh, screamed in profanity a few times uh, days after surgery, like whenever I sneezed or coughed or whatever. That's a, that's a rite of passage. How, how tough was sleep for you for the first two or three weeks after surgery? Um, the first night was pretty bad. I don't, I don't mind sharing this with the world, but that's actually the first time as like an adult that I've cried from being in pain. And it, I mean, I, I think that part of that was the timing of, uh, so they did a nerve block prior to the surgery, which wore off after some number of hours. And I, I think that I timed my first dose of. What is the nerve block, Tyler? Um, Basically, the way they explain it to me is that they, they use ultrasound to guide a needle uh, to the muscle. So they kind of sent a needle through my trap down into my chest and kind of fished around until, I don't know what they use, but they use something to uh, essentially block sensation like local to whatever's innervated outward that way. Um, and and they, they very strongly recommend it. Like I spoke with the anesthesiologist before the surgery, and I was kind of like on the fence about like how much help I I would need managing the pain. I was, you know, if you don't think I need it, maybe I don't take it. I'm a little bit wary of, uh, not with a nerve block, but especially with like painkillers. Um, some history in my family of addiction. So I wanted to be careful with that. But he's like, no, just do the nerve block. You're going to, you're going to be glad you did after the surgery. So I, I did. And then I, I, I think that I did a little bit of a bad job timing the first dose of, uh, Norco. Um, and I also didn't know if I would need like the, you know, the, they, they gave me options for my dosage. Like this is the max you could do. Here's like the smallest we'd recommend. So I started with the smallest, you know, just about the time they said that I should take it, but maybe a little bit late, honestly. 
Um, and man, that the pain hit me like a truck. <laughs> uh, and so I, I ended up for the first maybe two days on like the max dose, max frequency. But th- this is also just me kind of being an idiot. So I had uh, for a company I'm building, I, I had, uh, if I've mentioned this more than once, I apologize, but I had diplomats from a different country visiting the following day. So I had to be at work. It had to be functional. So I, uh, my team tells me that I did fine, that I seemed normal. But in my head, I was very worried that I was going to seem like I was under the influence the entire time they were there. But it was okay. I, I think though the, the first day was the only one that was really hard when it came to sleep. The following days, I was just, I was so tired um, that I had no trouble falling asleep. Staying asleep is different because if I move on accident, you know, I'd wake myself up. Um, but then me and, uh, Christine, my, my partner, Christine, we, we developed a system of like putting pillows around that I wouldn't be able to move basically. <laughs> um, so we, yeah, we the found a way. pillow fort is very important. I think, especially for, it was basically a pillow fort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so but, Mike, uh, you are <clears throat> sorry, Charlie, go on. No, go ahead. Mike, you mentioned pain and research on pain. Do people who pursue sport at like a higher level or a higher frequency, we'll say, or a higher intensity, do they have like a particular kind of threshold for pain that like, you know, they can increase and they train? Have you seen any research on that or any experience with that? I haven't seen any research on it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just not on my radar. It, you know, it's it's hard because in all the things that make pain complicated are all the things that make this this discussion so complicated, right? So there's all these sociocultural things in sport too, where you you push through it and you train through pain and you wrap up the ankle or you get the injection and then you just go. And, you know, all those things create different pain experiences for people too. And I I think that the last 20, 30 years, things are changing a lot and really quickly. Um, But, you know, it's hard. I wouldn't know whether it's like there's something about, elite level athletes where a pain threshold is significantly different. I would imagine that they play through more pain than the average person. Um, but I would imagine that the reason for that is for a lot of different reasons, not just a, or a genetic or a learned pain threshold. So, so could it be that like, there's more pushing them forward other than just their kind of internal ability to manage the pain? Like for example, they're externally motivated to push through the pain more. That's why they have like a higher threshold. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, and that's just one of the factors, right? Imagine if you're someone who's fighting to get on that, that last roster spot on a, on an NFL team, right? I mean, are you going to tell them about the three out of 10 pain in your knee, or are you just going to zip it and, and get on that spot and try to get, a paycheck. And I mean, those are powerful motivators that dramatically change how your body is interpreting things and how you're responding to things. And that's just one tiny example, right? I, I wonder if um, any of that has to do Ross with just like how familiar uh, some athletes may be with call it discomfort or pain, what have you, but you know, training is supposed to be hard. Um, however, it is going to be hard. It, it's going to be at some point uncomfortable, if not painful. And I think just being familiar with that makes it less scary. So you might see the actual experience. It's it's so hard to to say if that's more or less painful or uncomfortable, but you might just see some people who, I guess, lean into that more or more readily just because that is not such a scary, unfamiliar feeling for them. Yeah, I think that's fair too. And it's like the people that love to do the, ice baths or the polar bear dunks. I mean, I, I, you know, is it something about them genetically that they can tolerate that for longer periods or have they just slowly and systematically learned to handle it? It's probably, it's probably a little bit of both, (laughs) you know, there's probably a little bit of genetic bias into something like that. They've been watching too much David Goggins. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Social media can be a dangerous place. (laughs) So is is it a kind of a, is it a fixed pain or do you think it's like trainable over time? Or I know it's, it's kind of like a, a bit of a weedy sort of a question, but does it change over time? Do you think? 
Um, I would imagine that it does um, because you as a person are changing over time, you know, and since pain is really a complex emergent phenomenon based on all the things that make you, you, I mean, you're, you're, you're different as years go on and as your training experience and your exposure to, you know, sub max or maximal thresholds changes and, and maybe gets better and maybe get more used to it. And so, yeah, I think there's absolutely an ability to train some of that. Um, how consistently, how reliably, I, I don't know, it's probably harder in a sport where movements are unpredictable. Um, and it's probably maybe a little bit easier in a sport like weightlifting where movements are very specific and controlled and, and repeated. Is there any factors that, that affect pain like significantly that people typically aren't aware of? Like something that, you know, I'm aware of like life stress, for example, you wouldn't think that, you know, the stress in your life would affect being on the gym floor, but yeah. Is there anything that people don't account for before going into a session that they maybe should? I mean, in my experience, when this is just working with the, the general population, there's a, there's a tremendous oversimplification of what pain is, right? I mean, pain hey, is, Ross, in, I'm sorry, guys, can, can we cut for like 30 seconds? My phone just connected my headset and it's like, it's going crazy. I'm <laughs> yeah. so sorry. Give, give yeah, me like 30 seconds. I'll, I'll take that care of that. I'll, yeah, I'll cut this after. It's all good. Oh. Ross, how's your training going, man? Um, it's going, it's going. So, uh, <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> I should think of you more because, uh, you know, I remember you were telling me you just, uh, had a newborn. Was it a son? Is that right? Newborn. Yeah. He's just 19 months old now though. Jeez. Oh, wow. I know. Wow. So yeah, you know, you are getting it done and I'm like, I'm doing a lot of running now basically. And, um, I'm just trying to get like whatever <sighs> lifts in I can. And I just got to like set a adjustable dumbbells here at home. So I'm like, getting it done after the running and um it's kind of easy to make excuses you know or just be like oh i can't do something in 20 minutes but i i can and um yeah it's kind of going along the running is the priority now though yeah you got any big events coming up you training for anything i'm gonna do the berkeley half on the 19th of november so no very soon nice yeah so should be good um yeah how's your training slow and steady <laughs> slow and steady i'm still that's way to be i built, built built a little gym in the garage which has been the lifesaver for for me so able to able to get the the commute to the gym is easy now um and that's made all the difference in the world with a with a newborn so still doing about three days a week trying to get some steps in in between that's about it <laughs> nice yeah um i think we're good to go again pick it up again yeah sorry about that I'm going to, I'm going to clap, right? So that when I look back on this, I'll have a point to like a loud point. All right. So just, okay. So Mike, something that I see on the, the gym floor a lot is the deadlift being a particular issue. And, and sometimes to an extent in the squat, is this something that you notice or is there anything inherent about the deadlift that has a higher risk of injury or just, you know, because we kind of talked a little bit earlier about like continuing to train, but uh, a common thing I see is that people will, for whatever reason, pick up some sort of pain, strain, injury with the deadlift, and then it's gone, it's cut. And it's like, they might never do it again. Whereas in my experience, I do get injured more doing the deadlift, potentially because I lift more weight. But if I keep training and modifying, like you suggested earlier, I can work around the pain and pretty quickly resume and get back to where I was before. So yeah, I guess, you know, what do you think it is about the deadlift that has people so kind of apprehensive to do it? That's a great question. I, there's so much to potentially unpack there, right? I, you know, why is low back pain the, the most dominant, most expensive, most pervasive location for pain in the world, right? And I'd say that there's probably some tie-ins there with the deadlift, you know? Um, and the answer isn't singular. It's there's a ton of different reasons. And I, I think probably people are worried about their spines. There's a lot of, I want to say fear mongering, but there's a lot of fear mongering about spine, spinal position, spinal health, spinal safety, um, so much more than any other area of the body, right? Um, there's something I think inherently scary about lifting weight. If you are, you know, in, in the deadlift position where, you know, you're 
essentially this is my low back lift, my posterior chain lift. So I think there's a lot of reason you can't see the low back. You can't touch the low back the way you can see and touch your shoulders and your elbows. I, I think that, but yeah, you know, you go on YouTube and there's probably more hits for low back pain and low back mm-hmm. problems than there is for elbow pain and elbow problems. So there's just, there's all of these social, cultural, individual all stacked up. There's all these reasons why I think people are a little bit more apprehensive, a little bit more trepidatious when they're dealing with their spine, especially their low back. So something that I notice when I train, which I don't think this is like well-founded is you can build more fatigue when you deadlift compared to like, say, for example, a bench press. So you want to train or not that you want to, but you can train harder for something like a, a bench movement. And I'm kind of working off the idea of the big three. You got, you know, your squat, bench, deadlift. So you can do more benching volume because the total fatigue is less, uh, which is kind of sort of, I don't know, ironic or weird or a coincidence that Tyler's got an injury in his back. So it, it almost disproves what I'm saying. But uh, do you think there's anything to that, that there's like more fatigue with, there's more like more total fatigue with a movement like the, uh, like in, in a particular movement over another, or is it all the one? What do you think around that? No, I, th- I think there's some, I think there's stuff to back that up, right? I mean, I think there's prevailing wisdom says that there's more nervous system taxing and more overall output, right? When you're deadlifting, because we're usually deadlifting more weight um, than, than with something like a bench press. Uh, I think that's why a lot of, you know, a lot of early and, you know, beginner intermediate training programs only have you work up to one set of five with a deadlift, but do three sets of five or five sets of five with squat, squat and bench. Um, so I, I, know, I think there's truth to that. It does tax your system more. I guess that what I think of is like, fundamentally, it's all muscle bone tissue in the shoulder joint versus, you know, the hip area as well. So it, it kind of, from that point of view, I'm like, why, could I do more volume for the chest? You know, it's kind of like, but I guess, yeah, you kind of answered it with, with more weight. Um, yeah. It's, it's probably, kind of well, you know, no, I think that's fair. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, the body of a car and tires are similar, but it's, it takes a lot more gas to drive a big rig up a hill than it takes to drive a, a truck. You know what I mean? And I think that's probably a, a, it's kind of fair with the deadlift. It's just It's more output. It's more work that your body has to do. Would, would either of you say that there's anything to like this idea that, um, say you're in, in the context of squat, bench, deadlift, maybe your bench, you recover from more quickly given, uh, similar stimulus, you recover from more quickly because those muscles are smaller, uh, compared to the amount of muscles involved in, say, a deadlift or squat. Yeah. I think that's right. That ties into your, their overall output is higher with the deadlift. There's a lot more muscle contraction happening with the deadlift because your, your, the density and the size of the muscles used there are, are bigger substantially um, than what you're using in, in your bench, which means you're burning a lot more of your fuel a lot faster when you're doing something like a deadlift as opposed to something like a bench press. I think you can just load yeah. up your, your hips so much more with a deadlift that it's going to require more recovery. I've, I've rarely felt fatigue or, or doms in my chest that I can remember. I definitely have, but I've, I've, de- I've, you know, a lot of the time on a heavy deadlift session, I've felt doms, you know, and, um, I, I think an sense. important note to add in there, because this, this is partly specific to Ross and, I, and I'm not saying this from nowhere, like Ross and I worked together for a long time, kind of trying to build technique. Um, I would say, Ross, you are very proficient at deadlifting. Like your technique is pretty squared away. So your best of days, uh, your limit of performance, it's not going to be skill. It's going to be, you know, what are your muscles and body capable of? Whereas, um, I don't know now, but like there were times when we worked together where your limit for say a bench press was not necessarily just how much force can you produce right now. It's also, is your technique good enough today to get toward that limit, right? So, so for some people, if that's the case for you, for some people, it also may be a thing where the lift where they feel, you know, just kind of destroys them the most or fatigues them the most, it might be the lift that they're best at because in training, they will approach their physical limits um, a lot more readily than they might in the lifts where they are still kind of learning or working through mastery of technique. 
Yeah, it makes me think just the way the way my body is. I'm set up to deadlift more than I am to bench. I'm. It's like it's almost like uh, I was always going to be a better deadlifter than a, a bencher. So, for both of you guys, is there certain people who are just set up to have certain injuries? Like they're they're at a higher risk because of their body type. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, again, that's a hard thing to study. And usually the groups that are studied are studied at a pretty high level. So I'm not sure this is generalizable to the population. But, you know, the more prevalent the injury, generally, the more studied it is. And I, I think that, you know, something like, um, you know, like an ACL tear, we know that there are certain things about the angle of your limbs and the size of your limbs that make you a little bit more at risk for an ACL tear compared to someone that doesn't have those things. And I'm sure that's inherent and true with, with other injuries as well, especially like non-contact, non-contact sporting injuries. So are, are there anatomical considerations in, in injury? Yeah. And I think those yeah. anatomical considerations probably apply to some of the stuff you're talking about too. Like someone who has a, longer femur relative to their tibia is probably going to struggle with squatting in a way that someone who doesn't isn't or and they might be better at deadlifting the way that someone isn't or if someone have long arms you can probably deadlift a little bit more whereas benching becomes more problematic and i, I think there's a lot of considerations there are they massive considerations i, I probably depends on the athlete and the, and the person yeah I, I don't know how much my my expertise can speak to this, but that is something that I, I thought about and I, I discussed a little bit with my, my care team is um, the probability of me getting injured in the way that I did might have been higher just considering that like my arms are pretty long to begin with, but proportionately my forearms are quite long. So um, like how how far past center line my elbow gets on a bench press, even with a powerlifting setup, um, it is quite a bit more than you might see with somebody with much, much shorter arms, you know, max grip bench press, you know, very much like powerlifting style bench some of these people they may not ever get to a point where their uh their elbows you know like chest level uh but such is not the case for me and ross so yeah that kind of makes me think of of powerlifting and let's just say recreational lifting so is there an inherent risk that if you do powerlifting and if you lift heavier your risk of injury goes up I, it's a, it's a, I'm not, I'm sort of asking for like a, a black and white answer, but, and I know that's not how things work, but <laughs> it kind of checks out because like you're lifting more weight. So like there's more stress in the body, but could you negate that with like proper technique or is it just always going to be the case? The risk goes up. That's Even a great question. Um, yeah. I, I, it's tempting to say the risk goes up just because you're lifting heavier and at higher thresholds, but it might also be the case that as your proficiency with lifting and recovery and stuff in, improve along that journey, that you're mitigating a lot of that risk. Um, I think once you get into semi-pro and elite pro level where you're training a lot and your, you know, your, your workload ratio is high, I, I think that is, is different. But for the general population, I don't necessarily think that lifting heavier loads necessarily is going to always be this. Well, now your injury risk is going up. I think there's probably a lot of things that are mitigating that. And I, I'm not sure I would say it's, it's a, it's a certainty, you know? If I can speculate a little bit, I, I would guess that a lot of that risk comes along with, um, there's gotta be some correlation between kind of like how much time you spend near your limit or how often you approach that limit. And it's interesting to think in, in athletic sports, I'm going to say powerlifting is not an athletic sport, but in athletic sports, um, you probably don't see that many instances where people are getting injured during training, but you do, you know, in their actual sport. So, you know, uh, say a football player in a game is probably more likely to be injured than he is just in his training. I would, I would guess. Um, That's true. Might correct me. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but maybe the difference for say resistance trained, like, you know, weight training athletes, barbell athletes, I think it's probably more common that we approach our limits in training much more than we do uh, or much more frequently than we would from competition. I don't know many people who compete in say powerlifting, weightlifting, strongman more than, you know, a couple times a year, really, even the ones who are like really deep into it. I think that's very reasonable. Yeah. 
Makes sense. It makes me think that as you become more advanced in whatever your sport is, and you know, we're talking about weight training, so it's like you have to become more of an expert on your own kind of body or your individual sort of like strengths and weaknesses. Because you know, if you don't, that's I think that's probably the biggest risk. You know, it's not sure a lot of people are strong, but they don't all get injured. So I think if you can, mm. at the same time, know your strengths and weaknesses, that's probably the best safeguard I would imagine for uh, yeah know yourself know your risk profile yourself right and and how deep you are willing to do that probably depends on how invested you are in that sport and what level you're participating in that sport but some if you're doing even some risk profiling of yourself it's better than what a lot of people are willing to do so can i um you go tony so go ahead ross you actually focus on this a little bit with, you know, you're, you're bridging the gap between the evidence and, and the people you work with. Like, what is the kind of common bridge you have to make? What, what's the sort of gap between, you know, your expertise and the general population that you work with? Um, so many, so many things, right? I mean, evidence gives you these very non straightforward things. I, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's tempting to think the evidence just tells you, bam. This is the thing, like we talked about with injury incidence rates and, and weightlifting. And when you look closer, you're like, well, this is only for this subset of the population measured this way with definitions that aren't consistent. So there's a lot more gray area typically than there is black and white area. Um, I think evidence is just trying to slowly and systematically <laughs> remove the gray. Um, but most of your, most patients, most of the time have fallen to the gray, right? Um, and you know, so something as simple as, well, we all should be getting 150 minutes of moderate intensity cardiovascular activity a week. Um, that's pretty black and white. It's about as simple as it gets, right? Uh, but how hard is that on an individual level with a client? Say, let's, let's look at your life and your situation and your knowledge and your willingness to participate in a plan like this. And there's so many pieces that are individual and unique to the person, um, even though the evidence in that situation is very clear, right? Get this amount of exercise. And if you can get more, it's better. Mike, in your practice, um, are there any like specific limitations or challenges? Because my understanding is that a lot of your practice is like telehealth, right? Remote. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you find that that is any more difficult or um, I guess what are the challenges that you see doing that versus when you were in clinic? I mean, it's definitely more difficult. I think for some reasons that are really obvious, right? Like I can't watch someone move in the same three-dimensional way that I could watch someone move in the clinic where I can just like walk around them and easily get different angles that I want to get. Whereas if they're moving, it's pretty two-dimensional. And if I need a new angle, they got to come and either move their body or twist the camera. So there's a lot of just inconvenient things like that. Um, There's an obvious limitation, not being able to put your hands on someone. So there's a lot of things that we do as far as kind of trying to tease out what the problem is and what the pattern of provocation is that we rely on our ability to apply resistance or palpate or do these things. And we lose that with telehealth too. And then I think there's an element of it's it's harder to connect with someone on video. Um, You're just missing that in-person three-dimensional real-time connection. You know, we're often looking at the screen, not at the camera, all these little tiny things that add up to make it, I think a little bit hard to build a relationship with someone. So I, I think those are the obvious things that are more challenging in telehealth. At the same time, you know, most people are self-selecting into telehealth because it fits their schedule. And, and otherwise, someone wouldn't have had time to take off work, drive to the clinic, find parking, take an hour, drive back. They, telehealth, you can hop in, 30-minute call, we can do a consult. So there's a lot of pros that come with something like telehealth, too. Um, and I think that ultimately, it's it's probably levels itself out. Um and if someone thinks that they would do well in telehealth, they, they probably would. Have you ever had a situation where they, like somebody came to you thinking that that would be the right fit and then it didn't work out? Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I, I generally try to encourage people to be empowered to, to say like, hey, this isn't this isn't the right fit. This isn't working. It's not what I expected. It's not in line. I, I really think that, you know, hands-on care is an important part of this treatment process for me. And I really tell people all the time, like I, 
my ego doesn't take it personally, honestly, if if this isn't the right fit, I'll help you find someone that's the right fit. So yeah, that happens. I'd like to believe that it doesn't happen that often, but it certainly does. Well, just, just for, for context too, for the people listening, how many clinics does agile have? Cause I, I understand it's quite a few, right? Yeah. I think for, in the community, there's, there's, um, something like 10, eight to 10 yeah. clinics. Yeah. So, so if that were the case that, you know, somebody came to you and, Hey, this is not the right fit. It wouldn't be hard for them to seek, you know, in-person care somewhat nearby as long as they're kind of local to that area. That's, that's right. Yeah. And even outside of agile, you know, I'm, we're sometimes, you know, how it is in the Bay area, two miles can feel like 30 miles. So uh, yeah. <laughs> if they're not near, if they're not near an agile clinic, we'll still work with them to find the right place and a good fit. And we, we have relationships with other clinics too, where we say, Hey, we got so-and-so, this is what they're dealing with. Can we get them in? So yeah, we, we do everything we can to get them into a good spot. How do you know, or how would listeners out there, how would they best make that determination as to like who can they trust with their, their recovery? So that was, that was a really tough thing for me at the outset. Like I was told by my surgeon here, go to this clinic. I'm very glad I did not stay there. <laughs> um, but I imagine for many people, they may just, that's as far as their investigation would go. It's like, okay. The doctor said to go here. I'm just going to stay there. Like, how, how do you know who you can trust with that responsibility? It's a great question. I wish I had an easy answer. I, I, I would probably say that maybe the first thing and the most important thing is kind of just your your gut read on how it went. I imagine that played into a lot of, of your decision. Um, you had the visit. You met with them. You chatted with them. And afterwards, you're probably like, that's just not the fit isn't there. Um and I think a lot of it's tempting to ignore that feeling because the inconvenience of finding a new PT and then booking another eval is tricky. Um, yeah. But I, I might say that you can kind of trust your, you can try to trust your gut. You can go with your gut. And there's, I, I don't, I hope there's not a clinic out there that wouldn't be amenable to you saying, Hey, I just don't think I'm, this is a good fit for me with PT. I, honestly, like at Agile, we want you to be with someone that's a good fit. So if you call and say, this isn't a great fit, if there's someone else that might be a better fit, we're not going to make you feel bad for it. Neither is the PT that you're leaving. Like, yeah, let's, let's try to make this right. Let's try to find a good fit. Um, and I also think a lot of it depends on the level of need that you have and the, and the level of specialized care that, that you need. Um, Tyler, someone like you, I mean, it's a pretty rare injury to rupture your pec. Um, and you're participating at a pretty high level. So you're probably looking for people on your care team that have a deeper knowledge and a deeper experience with that injury and specifically with high level barbell weightlifters, right? Um, so you need a little bit more refined care team than someone who's like, hey, I have maybe a little bit more run-of-the-mill knee pain, um, sure. which is probably going to be a little bit different in how they're approaching which PT works well for them. Uh, but if you're a high-level runner, it's okay to call and ask clinics, hey, do you have a therapist that specializes in treating high-level runners? That's what I'm looking for. And I, I imagine that's what you did as your process of kind of finding the right care team for you is like you called, you asked, you checked their website, you check their Instagram, you say, okay, like, these things all kind of fit and paint a picture of a team that knows what they're doing when it comes to someone who's benching 3X their body weight or whatever. It wasn't 3X, let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> close, 2.5. <laughs> it was more than 135, less than 3X my body weight, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I will say I was, I was very, I'm very lucky to have people like Ross and, um, and one of our friends, Sheree, who like, you know, as soon as they heard what happened, they uh, they basically started, you know, making calls, figuring out who might be able to help me. And I, I honestly do wonder, like, without that, if if I would have found the sort of help that I really needed, um, because as far as I can tell, like, with you and the guys that I work with now, slim pickings in Sacramento, let me tell you. <laughs> Yeah, maybe may a little easier in the Bay Area where the density is higher. And I considered driving the two and a half hours to get to Agile uh, when I first was going through it, but it's two and a half hours with no traffic, right? Yeah, so, that's with, if there's no traffic, right? That'd be a whole day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Mike, you mentioned uh, knee pain for a runner. I literally, that is me right now. <laughs> so... And you also mentioned already about pain, you know, if, if the pain is not getting better, but it's getting more intense, worse, when would you suggest someone goes to see somebody like you and 
how how would let's just you know i'm being a bit selfish but hopefully other people have kind of similar niggles or similar issues going on that someone sees a, a physical therapist over other you know health specialists out there so yeah just kind of when to see a specialist and, and when to see a physical therapist Ooh. When to see a specialist versus when to see a physical therapist. I, you know, I think that for the vast majority of your aches and pains, you can go right to a PT. Um, and that's probably cuts out the middleman to a certain degree and it probably speeds things up a little bit. We know from certain investigative research that it's overall, it reduces cost. It's overall cost savings to just kind of skip the go to the PCP to get the referral to PT. I think the more, obviously the more catastrophic, the more severe the injury gets, the more quickly that process will change, right? I, I, I would imagine that Tyler didn't go straight to PT. <laughs> he probably went straight to the emergency room, urgent care or something or something similar, right? And, yeah. and you know, of course that's an extreme example. So I think you kind of have to think along the terms of the spectrum, but for the vast majority of knee aches and pains, shoulder aches and pains, spinal aches and pains that you know, you can go right to, you can go right to PT and you can hopefully save yourself some time with the, um, skipping the primary care physician or the, or the specialist. Um, I will also caveat that and say, if you have a great PCP, you have a great relationship with your PCP, you've been seeing them for a long time and, and you don't have that with a PT, then that might supersede this order of operations that I'm seeing right now. And it might make a lot of sense to go to them first because they're already a trusted part of your health and your care team. And, you know, so I think in the situation where you do have an established PCP and you have great trust in them, like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Go with where you trust. So Mike, this has been great. Thanks very much for your time. Tyler, this is good as always. Uh, is there any final message you want to leave people with Mike or Tyler before we wrap up? I'll leave it to uh, Mike. Jeez. On the spot. You know, I, I think that, First, thanks for having me. It's great. To, it's great to talk to you guys. I, I think that, um, you know, just the pain is complicated. It's hard. It's, it's okay to reach out and get help. It's okay to get a quick consult. You know, you can go to your PCP or PT and you can get, you can say, Hey, I just want to talk to someone for 60 minutes, 36 minutes about what I'm dealing with. I don't want to commit to a long-term plan. I don't want to commit to, and you can do that too. So it's always okay to reach out. And if you're feeling stuck or you're unsure, or you've tried some stuff, then. getting someone in your corner sooner rather than later can be really helpful. Great. Thanks very much. I love the idea of of reaching out for help and just, yeah, not trying to manage an injury alone. Thanks, Mike. and, And thanks, Tyler. Yep. Always a pleasure. Thanks all.